Thank you. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to be in these uh, surroundings. I really, I've spoken in a lot of places over the last few months. I even spoke at the State Department where they brought me in a library and showed me a book that had been signed by Thomas Jefferson. But they don't have anything on this place. <laughs> this is really a, uh, a wonderful institution that I've admired ever since I was a kid growing up here. I noticed that uh, the other day our mayor uh, announced that he had had many, what did he say, many advantages growing up in Boston, but symphony concerts and membership in the Athenaeum were not among them. I, all I could say is, it's never too late. <laughs> um, well, it's really a thrill to be able to be here and to talk about these fascinating figures, uh, neither of whom I think I'm ever going to see in a toga on a statue in, in these hollowed halls, I think. Even the State Department is not quite ready to do that. Nonetheless, there's been a little movement on the Dulles uh, statue front, and I have to tell you this, this is, I've just found out about this, so this is hot news. In fact, it's so hot that it hasn't even been in the press. In fact, having been in the press for a long time, I know that's really not where you go for your, for your real news. Um, something very, very interesting happened last week, and it's so interesting it has never been reported, so I'm, I'm just going to share it with uh, a few intimate friends here. Um, so uh, those of you that have read my book uh, may know that the very opening uh, page, like page one and page two, tells a particular story. Um, and it is with this same story that I have opened every speech I have made for the last four months. This is why my wife's not here. She just can't hear them anymore. Uh, so the story roughly goes like this. Uh, when I started, this is all a true story. It's the beginning of my research into the Dulles Brothers. Um, I came to realize very early in the process of writing this book that uh, the Dulles brothers have fallen quite a bit from their pinnacle of uh, recognition in the world. Uh, when the Dulles brothers were in power, when John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State and his brother Alan was director of the CIA, they were hugely powerful figures. They, they could shape the world and they could make and break governments, and they did. There probably wasn't a literate human being on earth who did not know the name Dulles. But now, they're almost completely forgotten. When I was working on my book, some of my friends would ask me, uh, so what are you writing about? What are you doing? What's your subject now? And I'd say, well, I'm writing a book about Dulles. And they would go, the airport? <laughs> That's how far they've fallen. So, uh, as I started my work on this project, um, I found on YouTube the video of President Kennedy uh, inaugurating Dulles Airport soon after taking office. Uh, and uh, he's giving a little speech. The audience includes former President Eisenhower, uh, Alan Dulles, who was then still alive, was there. Uh, Mrs. John Foster Dulles, the widow, was there. Kennedy made a nice little speech. Then he pulled back a curtain and revealed the big bust of John Foster Dulles that stands in the middle of Dulles Airport. Uh, so I decided, since I'm starting off on this project of immersing myself into the lives of Foster Dulles and his brother, I want to go see that bust. I've been through Dulles Airport a number of times, but I never noticed it or thought to look for it. So now that I'm working on it, I want to go see the bust. So I, I'm arranged to make my next trip through Dulles Airport. And uh, I asked the first security guard I found, where's the bust? <laughs> and he didn't know. I was very frustrated. He said he had never seen it. I finally asked him, well, who do you think this airport is named after? 
To which he replied, some guy named Dulles, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't able to find the bust. It's a long story, but there were many phone calls and emails afterwards. And finally, I did arrange for a woman who works for the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority to meet me at Dulles Airport and take me to where the bust is. It is standing in a closed conference room opposite baggage claim number three. <laughs> so this is the ultimate metaphor for what has happened to the image of John Foster Dulles. From the center of the most modern airport in the world to a closed room near the baggage claim where nobody can see it. So I point this out poignantly in my book. It's not the most original metaphor, but I think it gets the point across. And then I've been giving my speeches, and I've been making this little, giving this little anecdote at the beginning. And last week, I just got a phone call from one of my friends in Washington. The Dulles bust has been brought out of the storage room. It's now back in the airport. I tell you, the power of the press. Never doubt it. On, on things of no importance, we're spectacularly influential. Um, so I now want to arrange to go through that airport again. And in fact, I think we, we got, I got to set up a little booth to sell my books. I mean, what? I've got to take some credit for this, and I think I've I got to get something out of it. Um, this episode, the disappearance of the Dulles bus, does raise a question about what, what happened to the Dulles brothers. So why is it that we effectively airbrush them out of our national narrative? I think a good part of the reason was that uh, the Dulles approach to the world did not work out very well for us. Caused a lot of problems that we're still living through. And rather than confront that fact, and see if there are some lessons that we might learn from the Dulles' misjudgments, it's a lot easier simply to airbrush them out of history and pretend that never happened. And that's really the American way. Uh, long term is not something we do. And historical memory is not something we're, we're known for. Uh, in, in a way, my book is an attempt to strike back against this historical amnesia and uh, try to bring back these figures uh, from a period that's not so long gone. And my book is a biography. It's the story of these two remarkable brothers. But it's also something else. I'm trying to use the framework of biography to ask a larger question, which is, why does the United States behave the way that we do in the world? Why are we like this? Uh, it, telling the story of the Dulles brothers is a real way of getting at that question. And my books are all stories. They're all, you want to turn the page. You want to find out what happens next. And so I don't write just academic treatises. I have to have something that has momentum, uh, and that, but, that, but that has underneath it a real, a real thought-provoking story. Um, so one of the things I find really interesting about the Dulles brothers, and this slowly became clear to me as I was writing the book, is this odd contradiction. 
So on the one hand, they're, they're truly extraordinary figures. Their family background and uh, the kind of upbringing they had was unique. On the other hand, they're very representative of America. They are the product of forces that created this country, that created us, that created the way we deal with the world, and that still shape our approach to the rest of the world. So I believe if we can understand some of those forces that shape the Dulles brothers, uh, we can also understand something about why they acted the way they did and why we act the way we do. Because in many ways, we are them and they are us. So I say that there were forces that shaped the, those uh, brothers that also shaped us and America. What were they? Well, I can think of, I can think of at least three important ones. Uh, young Foster and Allie, as he was known as a kid, grew up uh, in a little town on Lake Ontario, Watertown, New York. It was something like a playground for the New York rich in those days. Uh, at one point, had the highest per capita income of any town in America. Um, however, the Dulles boy's father was not a plutocrat. He was the uh, Presbyterian minister. Um, and uh, they went, came from a long line of uh, Calvinists. So uh, every morning in the summertime would begin the same way for the, the two boys. Uh, they lived in the parsonage with their father, but their older relatives doted on them. Their grandfather was besotted with his two grandsons. And their grandfather had been Secretary of State. Uh, their uncle also loved them. Their, brother, their uncle was also Secretary of State. So it's a pretty unusual family background. Um, every morning in the summertime, the two boys would wake up. They would take a cold shower. Only kind Reverend Dulles allowed. He thought it built character. Um, then they would spend about a half an hour praying and singing hymns. Then they were free to run down to the lakefront where Grandfather Foster was waiting for them, known to the rest of the world as Secretary of State John Watson Foster, and Uncle Bert, later to be known as Secretary of State Lansing. So the four of them would spend every day in the summers on these fishing trips around the eddies surrounding uh, Lake Ontario, and they weren't just fishing trips. They weren't just stalking the smallmouth bass. Those trips were a cascade of lessons in American history. And Grandfather Foster used them to inculcate the boys in his view of America. Now, John Watson Foster, actually I found out from looking through his, peer, his history as Secretary of State, John Watson Foster was the first American Secretary of State to preside over the U.S. overthrow of a foreign government. It was Hawaii, 1893. So there may be something, a genetic predisposition in the Dulles line for a regime change. Um, Grandfather Foster had lived the classic pioneer life in the age of manifest destiny. He had gone to the West and fought the evil savages and tamed the wilderness ingratiated himself to powerful men, he built a newspaper, he helped people in politics, he got diplomatic appointments and crowned his career with being Secretary of State and then became a lobbyist, uh, really the first American lobbyist for international corporations. Um, so he was a real product of what we call American exceptionalism. And I think that is uh, the ideology that he transmitted above all to his uh, 
grandsons. It's this idea that the United States has a providential mission. We can do things in the world that other countries shouldn't be allowed to do because they act for selfish reasons. The United States doesn't do that. We only act in the benefit of everybody. Uh, and we should, uh, we are put on this earth, Americans, to project our influence and our form of government over other peoples, uh, as particularly those who are so backward that they don't even know how much they need our help. Now, of course, Grandfather Foster thought of this as inside North America, but the Dulles brothers, when they grew up, projected that uh, internationally. The arc of American history is uh, so short and it's represented in this short span. So Grandfather Foster had campaigned for Abraham Lincoln and the grandsons projected American nuclear power all over the world in the, in the atomic age. So this belief in American exceptionalism, that it was America's destiny to overspread the world and that this was good for everybody, um, was something that I think is a great force that shaped the Dulles brothers and it shapes us. Second big force that shaped them was uh, missionary Calvinism. Uh, as I said, the grandfather, the fa great grandfather, the great uncles, the great great uncles, the father, these uh, uncles, they were all Presbyterian clergymen and many were missionaries. Uh, the, the missionary ethos uh, was uh, the entire environment in which the Dulles brothers grew up. Uh, this Str uh, strong form of Calvinism teaches you a couple of things. One is it teaches you that the world is made up between the good and the evil. Uh, there's a true religion, and then there's all the false wrong ones. There's not something in between. Um, so the Dulles brothers really grew up with this way of looking at the world. Uh, and if you believe that about religions, that there's one religion that's right and the others are wrong, it's a very simple step to believing the same thing about politics and government, that there's one society that's right, one way of running things that's right, and then there's all the bad, wrong ones. Um, some people in other cultures grow up with a different view. They grow up with this view that all of us are, are composed of some good and some evil, and these impulses come out in different proportions according to different circumstances, but the Dulles brothers never believed that. The other piece of this uh, Calvinist uh, fundamentalism was the, the missionary ethos. Once you realize that there's the good and the evil, you do not have the right to stay at home and just root for good. You have to go out there and make the good triumph over evil. And again, this in its essence is a religious belief, but you can transfer it very easily into politics to believe that since the United States has been given this spectacular key to human happiness. It would be so selfish and churlish of us not to go out in the world and share it with others. So this missionary impulse, something that uh, very strongly shaped the Dulles brothers, is also part of the American approach to the outside world. We believe that we have a better idea of what's good for the world than the world itself has. A uh, third uh, influence that shaped the Dulles brothers uh, decisively is corporate power. So they were partners in this remarkable Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell. That was a law firm, but only in name. It really didn't do what other law firms did. If you needed to be represented in a courtroom or you needed to have a contract drawn up, they had people that could do that. But this is not why people hired Sullivan and Cromwell. Sullivan and Cromwell had a specialty. 
And their specialty was pressuring small and weak countries to do what big American companies wanted them to do. That's what John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles spent decades doing. That's their professional life. And they were experts at it. That's why every major American multinational corporation hired Sullivan and Cromwell. It was because they were so good at this. Just to give one story, of which there are many, many, uh, Foster Dulles was just a young associate in 1917, just gotten to the firm. Uh, there was trouble in Cuba. Uh, many of the uh, Sullivan and Cromwell clients had investments in Cuba. There was a huge investment in the Cuban sugar industry. We owned the cement uh, plants, several mines, the railroad. There had been an election in Cuba. The liberals who favored restricting the amount of land that foreigners can own in Cuba won the election. The conservatives refused to give up power, so the liberals started a rebellion. The companies were in a panic, so they went to Sullivan and Cromwell. And essentially, they said, this is what we hired you for. We got some trouble in Cuba. Make it go away. So Foster Dulles got the case. He got on the train to Penn Station. He went to Washington to have a chat with Uncle Bert, otherwise known as Secretary of State Lansing. Uncle Bert asked him, what should we do? Foster Dulles told him we should send two warships to Cuba to crush that liberal rebellion. The next day, two American warships were sent to Cuba. 6,000 American Marines debarked. They crushed the liberal revolution. They started a five-year uh, occupation of Cuba, and the interests of those American companies uh, were safe. I, I don't want to tell you how the story ends. It's not so happy at the end. But uh, for the moment, we were able to protect our interests in Cuba while enraging a lot of people whose children and grandchildren would cause us a lot of trouble later on. Uh, so I think those three forces are very important in shaping the Dulles brothers and in shaping us and our approach to the world. The idea of American exceptionalism, the missionary instinct, and the belief that serving the interests of big American corporations and serving the interests of the United States are effectively the same thing. Now, uh, in the early 1950s, before they rose to their positions of great power, uh, the Dulles brothers and Sullivan and Cromwell suffered two most unaccustomed reverses. They, they had two problems they couldn't solve. The first one happened in Iran. In 1951, the government of Iran nationalized the Iranian oil industry. Uh, not only was that a terrible uh, example that uh, all of the clients of Sullivan and Cromwell found uh, horrific. But the bank for that, so the Iranian oil industry was owned by one British company. The bank for that company, its financial agent, was something called the Schroeder Bank, big international bank. That bank had, was a client of Sullivan and Cromwell. And in fact, Alan Dulles was on the board of directors of uh, Schroeder Bank. So after... Schroeder Bank and its associated company lost their interest in Iran, the Dulles brothers essentially had to go back to their friends at the Schroeder Bank and say, we failed you. You hired us to protect your interest in Iran. You just lost your interest. They didn't like that. They were not used to doing that. Very soon afterwards, something similar happened in Guatemala. Uh, that was when President Arbenz and the Guatemalan Congress uh, passed a land reform act that affected the interests of United Fruit. That was one of the biggest, most important, oldest clients of Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, 
And by the way, the bank for United Fruit was also the Schroeder Bank, coincidentally enough. Uh, so the Dulles brothers had to go back to Schroeder Bank and United Fruit and say, you, you made a mistake trusting us in Guatemala. We, we couldn't protect you. They didn't forget that. At the beginning of 1953, John Foster Dulles became Secretary of State and Alan Dulles became Director of the CIA. They did not even wait to be sworn into office before they started the plot to overthrow Prime Minister Mossadegh in Iran. And they didn't stop till it was done, and it was done in eight months. And in August of, that of uh, 1953, not only was Mossadegh gone, but democracy was gone from Iran forever. Uh, immediately after that, literally on the same day that they'd finished with Mossadegh, they turned their interest to Arbenz in Guatemala. And uh, sure enough, uh, less than a year later, they had managed to overthrow him, and dictatorship then descended over uh, Guatemala, uh, where uh, it's still uh, the form of government that people have known over generations. So later on in their career, the Dulles brothers came up with other enemies, people that they wanted to go after in the world that they thought uh, were inimical to American interests. But here were two, the first two, Mossadegh in Iran and uh, Arbenz in Guatemala, who were the victim of grudges that these guys carried with them from their days as private lawyers. And it really shows you this bridge uh, that uh, goes both ways and connects private power and public power uh, in dealing with American foreign policy. Now, one of the things I found interesting about the Dulles brothers in uh, essentially living with them for a few years, which was not always a pleasant thing, uh, is that although uh, politically they were identical, they saw the world in exactly the same way, uh, in their private lives, in their personalities, they were polar opposites. So John Foster Dulles was stiff, arrogant, self-centered, socially awkward, um, unpleasant to be around. I read somewhere, even his friends didn't like him. He was harshly confrontational. Um, Winston Churchill once said, he's the only bull I know who carries his own china shop around with him. <laughs> but I, even, I like even better a line from another uh, British prime minister that was Harold Macmillan. Uh, he said about Foster Dulles, his speech was slow, but it easily kept pace with his thoughts. Alan Dulles was the complete opposite. Alan Dulles was the most charming guy you'd ever meet, a bubbling presence at cocktail parties, a wine connoisseur, a tennis player. He had a hundred affairs. His mistresses were everybody from Clear Booth Loose to the Queen of Greece. He was entertaining in the CIA headquarters office. Can't get away with that anymore. Um, Alan was a much sought after dinner guest, and I think this was important. Because Alan Dulles, as director of the CIA, was not only the head of the invisible government, he was also the ambassador of the invisible government to the visible government. And I think when a lot of people left those cocktail parties in Georgetown, they might have been thinking, well, we don't know what the CIA is, we don't know what it does, but if it's run by such a wonderful guy as Alan Dulles, it must be fine. Let's not bother them. So I think that did uh, help carry the uh, 
it did help carry the CIA for a long time. Uh, now, one of the points in my book is that we've misunderstood the history of the 1950s. We think of it as a time of peace, tense peace. But actually, as I try to point out in my book, the Dulles brothers led the United States into a global world war during the 1950s. We didn't see it because it was mostly waged clandestinely and secretly. And when it did pop up into public view, as it did in Guatemala, for example, or later in Indonesia, where the Dulles brothers fomented a civil war, uh, they told us this was just a local uprising, and we didn't have anything to do with it. In fact, that's how they worked so well together. It was the only time in history that uh, brothers have controlled the overt and covert sides of American foreign policy. And it was a wonderful arrangement. They never had to consult anyone else. And they had believed, they believed so much the same. They'd grown up the same way. They converted the entire foreign policy process into a kind of a, a reverberating echo chamber for what they both believed and what they both heard over all those dinners when they were kids. And one thing I do hold against them is that they, they were very uncreative thinkers. They were not really intellectuals. Everything they believed when they were 12 years old, that's what they believed their whole lives. Um, the theater of operations of the war that they waged in the 1950s kept changing. It went from Iran to Guatemala, to Indonesia, to Egypt, to the Congo, to Vietnam. That's another reason why I don't think it became clear until much later what was really happening in the 1950s. And that's one of the stories that's, that's in my book. Um, now looking back at the Dulles brothers, um, what lessons can we draw? There are several big historical misjudgments that stand out in, in, their, uh, in their record. And they, they're all ones that are very useful to us today. So the first one was that uh, the Dulles brothers believed, as a basic principle, you should never talk or negotiate with your enemies or your rivals. Just negotiate with your friends. That's so much easier anyway. Uh, they believed, for example, that if the United States ever sat down at a negotiating table with negotiators from China or Soviet Union or communist countries, this would convey an impression, particularly to the American people, that we considered those people to be normal human beings. And we could have an exchange with them. We would tell them our ideas. They would tell us their ideas. We would negotiate. Maybe we'd come up with some answers. Maybe we'd get to know each other better. This would destroy the entire paradigm of conflict on which Foster Dulles believed that the Cold War was based. He feared the loss of national unity, the loss of a sense of purpose if we did not confront the enemy and if we tried to make peace with our enemies. Um, Stalin died only a few weeks after the Dulles brothers came to office in early 1953. Very soon, peace feelers began emerging from the Kremlin. At the end of 1953, there was a, a summit conference in Geneva. I'm sorry, a summit conference in Bermuda of the, what was then called the Big Three. So that was France, Britain, and the United States. Um, one of the main agenda items was a request by the interim Soviet leader, Malenkov, to have another summit that would be the Big Four. So France, Britain, United States, plus Soviet Union. Churchill, who was there, thought this was a great idea. The French thought it was a great idea. But Foster Dulles was totally against it. 
He vetoed it. He opposed it. The summit was never held. And by his um, rejection of compromise and negotiation, he may well have uh, lengthened and intensified the Cold War. And in our modern world, this is, this is a good lesson for us. Second great historical misjudgment that the Dulles brothers made is that they completely misunderstood the nature of third world nationalism. The time when they were in power was the period after World War II. Many countries in Asia and in Latin America and in Africa were emerging from different forms of colonialism. They were looking for their place in a turbulent world. Many of them were not eager to participate in the Cold War because they saw huge problems at home. They only wanted to develop their own country. They didn't want to be pro-Washington or pro-Moscow. Foster Dulles hated this. This is what became known as neutralism, which I think Foster Dulles actually hated worse than he hated Bolshevism. <laughs> the reason is that Bo the Bolsheviks at least admitted who they were. The neutralists all pretended to be something they weren't. This was Foster Dulles' idea. So when he would look at somebody like Mossadegh in Iran or Arbenz in Guatemala or Nasser in Egypt or Sukarno in Indonesia or Nehru in India, he didn't see a person who was a kind of a conscientious objector to the Cold War who had a big project at home and just didn't want to get involved in world politics. What he saw was a very clever Kremlin plot. He felt that the Soviets had looked around the world and realized that there were certain countries they couldn't grab right away. And in those countries, they should find one of their lackeys and instruct him not to admit that he was working for the Kremlin, but to pretend that he was a neutralist, equidistant from Washington and Moscow. And then sometime in the future, when the appropriate moment came, he could snatch down onto his country and pull it right back behind the Iron Curtain. This was the way we looked at people like Sukarno and Arbenz and, and Mossadegh and Nehru and, and Nasser and so many others. Uh, we turned into enemies. Many people and, and whole nations that were very open to the American ideal. This narrow-mindedness, uh, this insistence that you're either with us or with the and then just fill in the blank. In those days, it was communists. That was a line that Dulles used to use. You're either with us or with the communists. We've heard it in another context more recently. But this idea of dividing the world in two and then feeling that the people on the other side of the fence have nothing to do with you, you have nothing to do with them, uh, is something that we learn from the Dulles brothers can be very pernicious because this not only harmed the target countries, it undermined our own national security. Uh, and the third huge misjudgment the Dulles brothers made was they had no concept of what we would now call blowback. It never occurred to them that their operations overthrowing governments would have huge effects years and decades and generations later. Iran is just one example. So 1953, we got rid of a guy we didn't like. Mossadegh, and we replaced him with a guy, the Shah, who would do everything we wanted. And that only took three weeks. It seemed like the perfect outcome. Well, we've lived long enough to see that it didn't turn out quite so perfectly for Iran or for the United States, and that has happened in so many places. Uh, Vietnam is another example. Uh, Foster Dulles was the person more responsible than any American for bringing the United States into Vietnam in the mid-1950s. 
at least with this misjudgment, uh, I could imagine that if the Dulles brothers were here, if they could come and defend themselves, they might have an argument. They might be able to say, we didn't know that covert regime change operations and clandestine wars could have huge effects in 50 years because before, 50 years before we were in power, there were no covert operations. We just used the uh, Marines. And that would be a good excuse, but we don't have that excuse today. At least now we know that these so-called uh, clean operations that produce short-term results can have terrible long-term consequences. So that's another good lesson to learn from, from the Dulles brothers. Now, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that you can now go back and see the bust of John Foster Dulles at Dulles Airport. Um, I'm not going to urge that any of you make a special trip. <laughs> For artistic reasons, um, it wouldn't be worth it. The bust uh, doesn't look like any of these. Uh, Mrs. Dulles paid for it. She didn't do it in the classical style, to put it uh, gently. I don't think she maybe hired the best uh, sculptor in America. He looks kind of bug-eyed and oddly diffident. Um, however, there is one masterpiece of 20th century art in which the Dulles brothers are central figures. I consider this to be one of the greatest pieces of political art of the 20th century. So it's a 16-foot-long mural on linen painted by the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera. Um, so here's the story. Um, if you look in my book, you're going to see a, uh, a reproduction of that uh, painting. In, in my, it's the last print in my photo section. Um, it's a painting about the overthrow of the government of Guatemala in 1954. Um, the story is this. After the uh, Dulles brothers succeeded in what Foster Dulles called their glorious victory of destroying democracy forever in Guatemala, um, there was an outburst of protest in Latin America. There were many American flags burned and many rallies. This also happened in Mexico, which of course borders on Guatemala and has its own long tradition. Uh, so at that time, Diego Rivera's wife, Frida Kahlo was very ill, and she had been ordered not to leave the house. After reading about the American overthrow of Arbenz in Guatemala, she became so angry that she told her husband, we have to participate in the protest. we got to go. And so against her doctor's orders, she went out. And I, I've actually found a photo of uh, Diego Rivera pushing the wheelchair at the very front of the protest rally, and in the wheelchair is the blanket-shrouded Frida Kahlo. She never went out again. She died 11 days later, and uh, Diego Rivera went on to paint that mural, uh, Glorious Victory. So um, right in the middle is standing John Foster Dulles with a big grin on his face. He's shaking hands with the Guatemalan lackey he has just placed in as the new dictator. Right behind him is Alan Dulles. Uh, he's wearing a big satchel around his waist out of which piles of money are spilling out. <laughs> Foster has his hand on a big unexploded bomb on which is painted the smiling face of Eisenhower. Meanwhile, Guatemalan laborers are bending under the weight of banana stems that they're carrying up onto a freighter with an American flag. Some dead Guatemalan children decorate the landscape in case you missed the point. Um, actually, Alan Dulles loved this picture. 
he had postcard-sized reproductions made up, and he handed them out to people. Um, now, I've studied this picture in enormous detail over a period of years. I've stared at it on the internet and on reproductions. I, know, I think I know every inch of that picture. Towards the end of my uh, research, I decided I was making a, a trip to Mexico. It was actually in January, so it would have been just one year ago. I was finishing my book, and I decided I'm going to stop in Mexico City, and I'm going to go to whatever museum it is, and I want to see that picture. I want to commune with it in person. Um, so from Oaxaca, I made a few phone calls to the Diego Rivera this and the Diego Rivera that, but I didn't get the response I expected. I got something like the response I got in Dallas Airport, which was like, what are you talking about? I, I was very surprised. I couldn't locate it, and I only had one day, so I left Mexico without seeing it. I tried later on to track it down, and I, it was so hard, I had to hire someone in Mexico to go to the various libraries and museums and find out what, what happened? This is such a huge work, and nobody knows about it. No one knows where it is. Well, there's a story behind it. And the story is this. Um, Diego Rivera was a communist. After painting this picture, he donated it to the people of the Soviet Union. <laughs> Soviet leaders, however, did not like Diego Rivera. They didn't consider him a good enough communist. He was changing his mind every day and not the opposite of a doctrinaire, not to mention that Trotsky was his house guest. Uh, so they didn't want the picture, and the picture disappeared. And nobody knew what had happened to it until the early 1990s, after the Cold War ended, after 35 years when nobody had heard anything about this picture a handful of Mexican art historians decided to take this on as a project. Let's track it down and find out what happened to Glorious Victory. So they went on an expedition and finally, thanks to their work, I was able to find out where this picture is. This picture is now the property of the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. So I had to ask myself, am I willing to fly to Moscow for one hour just to stand in front of that picture? And after thinking about it for a while, I decided, yes, I am. I'm going to go. I got I to gotta complete the circle. I have to do it. Um, so through a long series of roundabout ways, I finally got in touch with the right person at the Pushkin Museum, and I received back the following email. The painting you wish to see, Glorious Victory, is rolled up on a roll in one of our storage basements. If you come to Moscow... I can take you to the basement and show you the roll, but I cannot unroll it because we have no space. So what it means is that this, this painting essentially is lost. It's not, I mean, nobody's burned it. Presumably it's still there, but nobody's ever going to see it again. There are no plans for it ever to be shown. And I, why should it be? Because let's face it, the people who need to see that painting are not in Russia. The people who need to see it are not in Guatemala either because they're very familiar with what happened to them. The people who need to see that picture are us. The, United, the, the American people need to see that picture. So that's, this is now my modest proposal. Having rescued Dulles's bust, from the baggage claim to the center of the airport, 
I now fear, I, at first I thought this was a huge achievement, but I now fear it's only going to be used to prop up his memory and all the wonderful things that he did. And they, maybe they won't let me sell copies of my book right next to it. Therefore, to complete the educational process, that painting should be brought out of the Pushkin Museum and made the centerpiece of Dulles Airport. I think it's a no-brainer. Um, maybe we put up some little plaques in front of the painting that would explain what's happening, who those people are. Maybe this would raise some questions in people's minds, not just about then, but about now. And maybe that's one way that we can use the memory of the Dulles brothers to help us today try to build a more just and a more peaceful world. Thank you.